Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast. It's powered by Fujitsu in partnership with McCann. My guests today are James Russell and Carlotta Jacquet. Carlotta is a coordinating ambassador for One Young World, our partner for The Lens. She works with an international bank and she is pioneering a new campaign for anyone who wants their money to matter while it grows. James is the chief executive of Brisk, a company which is protecting businesses in a whole new way. I'll ask him how. In this episode, we talk about risk and opportunity. We'll talk about sustainable finance, what that means and why it matters. And in the midst of a global pandemic, we discuss the changes worth keeping. Let's get to the conversation. James and Carlotta, welcome. Hi. Thank you for having us. Carlotta, can I just ask you to remind us about the work that you're doing with One Young World? I mean, this is a global connecting organisation and you play actually uh, quite a prominent role within it here in the UK. Just tell us what it involves. Sure. So One Young World is an amazing forum that identifies, promotes and connects the world's most impactful young talent. And it is just such an amazing community because it's very inclusive um, and, you know, really makes sure that people collaborate and yeah, share their experiences with each other. Um, here in the UK, uh, I'm a volunteer and I'm something called the Coordinating Ambassador. Mm. Uh, so essentially, once you're part of the One Young World community, you are an ambassador for One Young World and sort of what this community stands for. Um, and as a coordinator, I sort of manage the community of UK ambassadors and I provide them with the tools that they need for them, you know, positive change for their projects. I bring them together. I, I try to connect them with each other to maximize impact. Got it. And so when we talk about the ambassadors, are those the relatively younger people themselves or is this the sort of, you know, the, the business leaders? Because I know you've got the different groups within One Young World. Yes, that is correct. You've got um, ambassadors and counsellors. So, yeah, the ambassadors are sort of the young leaders. And right. these are essentially, you know, the people who are already doing amazing work and really driving change within their societies, communities, organizations, you name it, uh, but to really make sure that they are prepared for, you know, huge challenges ahead and to become global leaders. And presumably you're connecting them to further their own um, careers, I mean that in a positive sense, and to collaborate, or are they coming up with new things when they connect? What do you notice? Uh, a bit of both. So, you've got people who kind of, you know, already really know what they're doing and what they want to do. And it's more a case of, you know, making sure that they know the right people or, you know, having events where they can, their work can be showcased. So, you know, really ensuring that they also get the, the exposure that they deserve and that, you know, they can grow further. And then you've also got people who are more of a, at a different stage. And certainly I was part of those when I first joined my first ever summit um, in The Hague in 2018 yeah. that needed a little bit more guidance. Still, we're still trying to figure it out, saying, OK, well, what is the one thing that I want to address? Yeah. Um, so you've got these two groups. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And. Carlotta, back to your story. We've heard about One Young World. Give us a give us a glimpse of the day job. I know we're not going to talk in detail about who you're working with, but broadly speaking, this is in the financial world. Sure, absolutely. I can talk about a little bit about sort of what keeps me busy. Uh, in terms of my day job, so I work for a small Dutch bank. I personally work in corporate banking and a sort of front office type of role in which we do deal, origination, execution, and management of 
existing transactions. And these are mainly, you know, senior debt transactions. So we really give debt to companies for them to be able to, to grow. Uh, usually that's you know, complemented then with, with equity uh, from a sponsor. And uh, I personally work in the digital infrastructure and renewable energy spaces, fiber optic, you know, data centers, solar, these kind of things. Got it. Uh, what, you must meet some amazing companies. Um, I noticed, Carlotta, one way you describe yourself is you say, I'm on a mission to make my money matter while it grows. Uh, I hope you don't mind me quoting that back at you. It intrigued me. On a mission to make your money matter while it grows. I, I, I think it gives a clue about what you really care about. Yes, thank you for bringing that up, actually, definitely. Um, well, I guess I'm an advocate for sustainable finance. In the past year or so, I've done a lot of work sort of figuring out how financial institutions can focus more on sustainability and funding and making sure that the funds are channeled towards the right kind of things. And there, there's all sorts of terms under the umbrella of sustainable finance that I'm not going to go into detail now, but um, some of them are more passive, some are more proactive. Um, but overall, there is the huge challenge of saying, well, how do you actually define and measure sustainability? But I also figured out that um, the people that, you know, sort of surround me or that I know, my friends, my family, are typically outside of the financial institution's world. And they're very keen on sustainability, so they're very keen on slow fashion, on um, climate change, uh, local produce, all these sorts of wonderful things. But they don't really have a clue on how that translates into their finance. So they could yeah. be doing all these great things, but they could still be, you know, financing fossil fuels with a pension. And that's why mm. um, I'm on this mission. And yeah, I've recently launched this um, initiative. Okay, well, I want to hear more, but I'm tempted when I hear you say sustainable finance to sort of nod along and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, do I really know what you mean by that? I'm not sure I do. So t tell me a bit more. Sure, with pleasure. Essentially, you know, if we think about the actual goal of financing, why do we have finance? Why do we have banks? Why do we have all that? It's, you know, to, to, gain, to have more economic prosperity, to have economic growth. In terms of our personal investments, there's a lot of trust also related to that. So we really trust institutions with our money, yeah. um, you know, whether it's a company or an individual. And well, obviously in recent years, you know, also with the crisis, that trust has sort of been, I guess, taken away a little bit. And I think and now um, it's crucial to, to reinstall that. And I think that sustainable finance is a key player for that. As I mentioned, there's many terms under that umbrella, but overall it's really ensuring that the um, the money that is invested goes towards things that make the world a better place. So that sounds to me, Carlotta, like the idea that, as you say, money um, and how it's invested matters can make the world a better place. You could tackle that by influencing the influencers, the large corporations. You might go to the consumer end and work on education or influence on that side. How are you going to tackle this? The way in which I would like to tackle this is, I guess, twofold. The first one is in my role, in my day job, sort of keep on pushing this agenda, this, this forward, sorry, to the edge of the forefront of the agenda um, yeah. within banking and financial institutions and really make sure that we're able to implement this in our everyday tasks to make, you know, sustainability part of the, the credit rating assessment, all these sorts of things. Is that part of the system at the moment? Because that's a fascinating linking of two big ideas. No, indeed. Um, well, at the moment, it's 
I have to be careful what I can say, but it's, it's not really part of it in that, yes, we've got frameworks, yes, we've got nice slide decks, and we've got ideas on how it could work, but it's not really part of the everyday processes, mainly because we don't know how to define and measure it. So how can we say, oh, this one client or prospect is more sustainable than the other? How do we define that across different sectors? Indeed, really, really, really fascinating. And are you able to say, Carlotta, how this passion for sustainable finance, particularly in terms of wider education, how that will come to fruition? Are you looking to set something up? Is it a campaign, a new initiative or waiting to be seen? So for the moment, I've launched my own sort of mini campaign, which is about yeah making my money matter while it grows and making my money meaningful. So really speaking to individuals and to drive the demand for more transparency in financial institutions. So for the moment, I'm doing that to really raise awareness and start talking about this. Where that will lead me, I'm not sure yet. Whether I will be an entrepreneur in the future or not remains to be seen. I uh, keep my doors open for the time being. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, James, maybe will encourage you to take the plunge at some point. James, of course, Kelot has got me thinking about the way we evaluate companies overall and you're in the business of helping us, I suppose, um, be, be, be safer, uh, be aware of what surrounds us. Let, let me not steal the thunder of brisk, but all founders have a favoured elevator pitch. Tell us what you do in a line at brisk. So at brisk, I mean, brisk is essentially a digital assistant that is giving small and medium sized businesses time back. So it's helping them save time running their business and keeping them safe so they can be stronger and more resilient. So we're using data and technology and trying to put it in the hands of small businesses. That's a cool idea. So so it sounds to me when I hear digital assistant, perhaps this will give me a tap on the shoulder and say, oi, you need to look out. And what sort of warnings would it be giving me? What sort of threats are we talking about? Yeah, and that's kind of where the idea came from. As people are using more um, of these apps to help them manage their finances, their savings, their their budgeting. Well, why can't we do the same thing for a busy business owner who hasn't got departments and resources that big companies have got? So while they're busy doing whatever they're, they're doing, servicing their customers or developing mm-hmm. their product, actually what Brisk is doing in the background is keeping an eye on their things like their cybersecurity risk, their credit rating, their financials, their people well-being, how the world sees them, because those are the sorts of things that can often creep up on you and catch you out. And we want to help businesses really stay in front of that stuff. Well, I would like to know where this came from, but specifically, why don't we ask a more I ask a more personal question? How did you get started? What was your first job? So my first job was actually as a boatyard assistant in Southampton, just off the River Hamble. Um, so probably 15, 16, I was I was uh, yeah, labouring in a boatyard painting boats. Goodness. So was this presumably uh, th- throughout the year, summertime? It was like a summer holiday job, um, and and that sort of theme seemed to follow. So after that, I then uh, set up a carpet cleaning business. So while I was at university, um, I found I could earn some cash on the side, actually cleaning carpets, just little things to do in the in the holidays to earn a bit of money. James, I can picture you in that boatyard. Just help us join the dots from there. University, first jobs after that. Give us a sense. So from the boatyard, I then developed a passion to uh, fly. So I was actually selected by the Air Force to be a fighter pilot uh, and wow. was was sponsored through university or for the first two years anyway, um, until I realized I didn't want to be a pilot anymore. And I was probably a bit too much of a maverick. So um, I had a carpet cleaning business as a student and then did a, a placement with British Airways uh, in Madrid, learned my Spanish, 
and from there went to join Lucas Automotive in uh, their supply chain and later as a, a key account manager uh, to the large vehicle manufacturers. So it, it gave me a terrific platform and a varied background. Two years in Ernst & Young after that as a consultant helped me realize that there was life in other industries as well. And that led me to Aviva and insurance and you know, a very rewarding place to work to really help people in their moment of need when a house had burned down or they suffered a, a car accident. And while I was there, I had the terrific opportunity to run an internet auction business for four years called bluecycle.com, which really was at the cutting edge of what eBay is now and many others are, but yeah, selling total lost vehicles to uh, salvage dealers all, all around the world. What an extraordinary potted history. I'm absolutely loving uh, hearing about it. Of course, for some founders, there's a eureka moment. For others, it bubbles up as an idea slowly over time. I'm suddenly realising, James, hold hold, hold fire just one second. Kellotter, I don't think I asked you your first job. That was very remiss of me. Uh, <laughs> but, but it has got me wondering, imagining James down on the boatyard, where were you? Um, I was actually in an Italian restaurant in Brussels. So that was my first <laughs> job as a teenager, uh, just, you know, helping out um, mainly as a waitress. Obviously, for me, the, the main perk was to get to eat the Italian food after the shift. Yes, no, I get no. Having worked in several restaurants myself, I can envisage this. Forgive me, James, back to the story. Um, was it a eureka moment, uh, brisk popped up, or was it one that sort of bubbled up over time? I think it was creeping up on me. And um, I guess spending so many years in large corporates, but then working in claims and insurance and uh, specifically in commercial claims, realizing that uh, lots gets done for the big companies, but actually it's often the small business that is left to fend for themselves. And my wife calls it a midlife crisis, but it was a, a moment of well, what if we could put the new emerging data and technology together in service of the small business and, and really get to that market that you know human brokers, advisors haven't physically been able to do before. And it probably took about 18 months for me to pluck up the courage to go do it and enter it into a hack event, which I did in 2017. But that was probably the liberating moment of just putting any inhibitions or, or fear of failure aside and just going for it. Fantastic. And give us a picture of where the business is today. So today, um, yeah, we're, we're live. We're, we've been live for about a year. Um, we have a range of clients from, I started with brokers, accountants, financial advisors, uh, cybersecurity advisors. So the sorts of small organizations that are helping small businesses. And we're now gradually adding on further clients, small businesses themselves. And what's interesting, and we might come on this later, I think, but is large corporates actually realizing that there's something in this technology that they could then deploy to their, their clients. Right. Well, that's interesting because um, it's worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, just how many small businesses there are. I mean, when we think of these large companies, I mean, I mean, how many companies in reality are large? I mean, 500 people plus. Just give us a sense of it. Well, yeah, I mean, you could you could measure those in as a, a few hundred, but if you talk about um, small, medium-sized businesses up to 250 employees, there's something like 5.8 million in the UK, and and you know they make up over 99% of the yeah. UK you know business population, uh, and they're employing what two thirds of the workforce. So they're a, they're at the backbone of our economy, and um, uh, I think it's just such an important sector, and we're seeing it especially now in these times to get behind and support. It also, listening to you today, James, it makes me reflect that really, with all due respect to previous and current colleagues, insurance is just a tiny part of the picture, really, isn't it? In the whole risk 
an opportunity game. Absolutely. And when we went out and spoke to you know, real small businesses to sort of get them to uh, either tell me I was just barking up of the wrong tree uh, or I was onto something, they sort of would say, James, I, I don't obsess about insurance. I know you guys do because you, you live it every day. But for me, protecting the business, one insurance is just one bit of it. I've got health and safety, training, uh, financial risk. I've got a number of areas that I have to keep an eye on. Yeah. And on that, you've also made me wonder, I talked about the virtual assistant tapping you going, you've got a problem. Can you also tell me when there's an opportunity or is that a bit out of scope? Absolutely not. I mean, open banking is is really exciting for us. I mean, we already connect to um, the business's uh, financial systems, but with open banking, we can start to get a really intimate view of the business. And just as those personal finance apps are doing to spot where you might be able to save money on your energy bills, well, let's do the same thing for small businesses. Cool. So just to remind us, open banking is where the government said that the big bank account providers have to allow the customer to open their account for other apps and so on and so forth. I mean, I think I've mangled that. Give me a better version. No, you're right. It is that. And those other apps have to be, uh, they have to have a license. So we work with a partner who is authorised to have access to that open banking data. And one of the things that we absolutely make clear to our our customers and clients is we, we are using your data with your permission and whatever we do with it is for you. It's to put that power into your hands. We're not using that data for some other purpose. Yeah. Uh, and the feedback we've had from people was overwhelming. Wow, if you can look at my accounts and see if there's an opportunity to do something better or save some money, I'm open to that. Interesting. Carlotta, listening to you and James talking, you're both talking in different ways about this idea of sort of putting on almost like 3D specs or virtual reality glasses, seeing more things in order to evaluate a risk or an opportunity. I mean, are you picking up on that connection? Absolutely. And that was actually going to be a question that I have for James. I'm just fascinated by risk. I was looking at, you know, the website and how they operate and, uh, yeah, I'm just so keen to know more. Uh, and I was really thinking about uh, exactly, as you mentioned, Ollie, this aspect of having to dig a little deeper to really find out how things actually are. And I wonder whether this can be applied to sustainability, because what I see in my work a lot is, you know, to us, for us to really understand how a company operates and whether it's sustainable or not, or sort of what UN sustainable development goals it addresses or doesn't address. We really need to dig deeper into the supply chain. Um, equally, we have to understand, you know, what risks and opportunities um, this company may or may not be faced with. Uh, so that was my, my question to James, actually. Um, how could a platform for risk uh, be leveraged for sustainability purposes? Well, that's a good biz dev question as well, isn't it, James? What, what, what do you make of what Carlotta's has asked? Yeah, it's really consistent with where we're going. And I mean, there's two things here. One is at that sort of corporate level, buyers are increasingly looking beyond the pure product and price when selecting suppliers or partners to work with. And beyond that, they're looking for things like, are they being socially responsible? Are they supporting the communities they work in? Are they sourcing ethically? What's their approach to energy consumption and climate change? So if actually through Brisk, we can help small, medium-sized businesses promote what they do in this aspect, because maybe they haven't got PR functions and big marketing teams to actually present a data profile that others can see that really shouts about what they're doing um, and makes 
other companies think, wow, these guys are really worth dealing with and I really connect um, and relate to their values and what they stand for. I think that's really, really powerful. It is. Carlotta, please, please do do feel free to respond. I mean, I absolutely uh, agree. In general, the more transparency we can have, the more data we can have, the more we can understand how that affects us and our environment, our societies. So where do you both stand? Here's a prickly question. Where do you both stand on using personal data, which might in some cases relate to how a person leaves what they consider to be their private lives when making business decisions? James, is it any business of my bank manager how I use my Twitter account? Yeah, or am I going off on a tangent? No, you're absolutely right, and and you know, we are a, a, we are regulated by the FCA, and you know, we absolutely respect the rights for privacy around personally identifiable information. So there is information out there that is publicly available, and and absolutely we work with that data. But where a client shares information that is personal information, we're absolutely strict about how that is used, and it's only if they want to share that information because they're responding to a tender or they want to give more disclosure to a supplier or a customer that they would include that. But it's absolutely in their control. Yeah. And I guess it's not a million miles off, Kelotta, in the sense that I heard a multi-billion dollar bank recently revealing that indeed it does look at the social media business profiles of anyone it's considering lending money to. So, I mean, this could be a much bigger radar than we thought. Yeah, looking at our data and sort of managing it, I think we have to be very careful, of course, how it's used. And there's obviously a huge difference between confidential and non-confidential, publicly available information. But I also think that for us to be able to evolve and leverage technology for the good things that it can do, there's plenty of amazing things that technology can do also for sustainability. We have to, you know, um, work with that. And of course, keep on improving it. Something like, you know, checking out um, a company's social media platform uh, as part of the lending process, I think makes absolute sense. Uh, It's part of the due diligence process. I don't necessarily do that for my corporate clients, but I, you know, we do our research. We obviously want to know who we are giving our money to and who we are associating ourselves with. No, it it makes good sense. Now, um, James, hearing about some of Carlotta's passions, did you have a question for her about what she's doing and how she's doing it? I find it fascinating how different generations have sort of um, different passions or axes to grind. And I I hear a lot about Gen Z, so the generation that's coming after millennials and their intolerance for non-ethical practices and big business, big corporates. My question for Carlotta is, what are you seeing emerge and are you seeing businesses react to that or actually encourage this type of revolution? Thank you. Um, absolutely. So unfortunately, I'm a millennial. I'm not young enough to be um, trans-led, uh, but uh, certainly also having launched sort of my my initiative, my campaign recently, most of the feedback and interest that I've received was actually from uh, people belonging to the, the Gen Z group, uh, which is very encouraging. And it's great to see because, you know, it's kind of, excuse the expression, but the no bullshit sort of generation, you know, I mean, they really care about uh, sustainability, but it's also, they have totally different values um, also compared to let's say my generation which is fantastic to see but I also think that it's very important to dig a little deeper there especially for how companies and financial institutions respond because I think there's one part that is more you know the marketing or the box ticking exercise behind it so oh look we address all these SDGs or you know we do all these things and actually driving the positive change. And in this instance, uh, well, going back to Brisk, actually, it's just so important to dig a little deeper and really find out what it's all about. Indeed, James. I mean, transparency, being authentic, I think they're, they're really important elements to 
someone's profile and how they come across. And I think as we expect to work with people that we get on with and we share the same values, I think it's just as uh, pertinent that businesses are looking to to work with businesses where they share common values. So I heard only this week of one corporate who is no longer working with a company because they had sort of stretched the truth about what they could do. And, and that was a real deal breaker for them. So I think it's really important to be transparent and, and uh, honest. I've got some rapid fire questions for you both. However, before that, I wanted to ask you a question which relates directly to the pandemic. And it is about what lasting changes you hope to see. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to take an answer off the table about flexible working and working from home, because this is very much discussed and to an extent very well known. Carlotta, what else do you hope will stick around and stay? The key thing that I will hope will truly be, you know, a learned lesson from this pandemic is the fact that when we really want to see a change, we really want to implement implement something, it's possible. We see that how the world is reacting to the pandemic, even in China, building a hospital in a ridiculous amount of time. All these sorts of things show me that, you know, if we really want to achieve something, it is possible. But a key element here is collaboration and working together to fight a common enemy. But obviously, guess what? You know, climate change, I know I go on about it, but it is a common enemy. Not addressing sustainability is a common enemy. So to me, it just shows that it's possible to do it. And I'm just hoping very much that um, this will be taken into consideration after or, you know, recovering from the situation. Excellent. A newfound belief in the art of the possible. Um, here's <laughs> hoping. Here's hoping to that. James, a lasting change you would like to see remain. So so one thing I've observed, and, and I don't know whether it's because I'm out in the country, but people are far more um, community-minded, saying hello to you, can I help, Facebook groups, doing deliveries, doing, mm. going to the, the doctors to get a prescription. And I really hope the lasting change is that when we all go back to our kind of lives again, that we don't suddenly forget some of those real sort of human and, and supportive traits. And I really hope that that continues, certainly within my village and within the communities that uh, we all live in, but beyond that, I, I hope that goes into business as well. And there have been some shortcomings, shall we say, around what big financial institutions are able to do to pay out claims and uh, cover business interruption that many businesses have suffered. And, and I do wonder whether that sense of sort of community and self-reliance will, well, I hope it will continue in that people will look to see how they can they support each other. And it almost goes back to that original sort of mutual idea that, that insurance started from. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great thought. So, James, let's take it back to very local. How are you going to keep that sense of community spirit or the risen community spirit in your village? How are you going to do it? Well, our, our next door neighbour, just before lockdown, actually, he started what he calls a black bin club because it happens when we all take our, our bins out. But we get together, just play some games. And I think we've got a Facebook community. We're helping each other, as I said. I think it's just continuing those things. We have a virtual pub quiz every Friday night. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're currently doing Taskmaster now. What's Taskmaster? Taskmaster. So Taskmaster, where we you get a set of challenge. So at the moment we have to um, recreate a famous paintings. So and take a photo. <laughs> so lots of creativity going on. Oh there. my goodness, Kellos, this is giving you ideas. I can almost sense it for the One Young World Global Community. 
I mean, yes, I'm loving this Taskmaster idea. I might uh, implement that for next digital meetup. <laughs> <laughs> I dread to think of some of the tasks that you would rise to. Um, let, let me ask. Let me ask some very quick fire questions. I ask every guest on the lens who they'd most like to meet. If you could have coffee with anyone, they must be alive. Who would it be? Uh, Kelotta, who would you meet? Must admit, it took me so, quite some time to figure this out, but I did go for Roberto Saviano. I don't mm. know if you know him, but he's an Italian writer and journalist, um, and you may know him through his series or book, Gomorra, that decomposes yes. sort of uh, how Camorra, the, the mafia um, in southern Italy, operates. And that's just a huge challenge and still a burden for the development of Italy these days. And I would just yes. love to meet him. Not to give away my habits, that might have made it onto uh, Netflix or equivalent. Yes, uh, Amazon Prime is my yes. habit. So yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> no, OK. So you would sit down with Roberto. I get it. Um, and again, um, a, a tough choice. James, who have you chosen? Uh, so on this one, I figured, well, given I was being given a golden ticket, um, I thought I'd go big. So I'd really like to meet Prince Harry. Would you? Um, yeah, Ooh. just to really understand how he dealt with the experience of wanting to do his own thing and, and, and go uh, forge his own path. And being authentic as to what I see to his own beliefs and that path, yet respecting his role and the heritage that he's from. So I just think it would be fascinating to hear that insight and how he dealt with that. Yeah, an excellent choice. And what a remarkable individual. Yes. How about on our bookshelf, Kelotta? A book doesn't have to be a business book that you think is worthy of a wider audience. Which would you choose? The one that I was certain to choose from the first second is called The Person You Mean to Be. By Dolly Chug. Um, and she's an award-winning social psychologist at the New York University um, Stern School of Business. Um, and it's a non-fiction book, but I devoured it. And it's essentially a guide on how to address equality, diversity, and inclusion in today's society based on the psychology of good people. So having the assumption that we all deem ourselves to be good people, but that we still have, you know, these kind of intrinsic prejudices and ways and, and the way that we judge others or you know, things that we don't know. And she talks about tailwinds and headwinds and how you know the difference between equity and equality and that's just fascinating so i very much recommend that book very interesting so this is by dolly chuck give us the name of the book again the person you mean to be person you mean to be well we will link to all of these tips and answers in the show notes as ever james what's on your shelf uh, so this this is a bit random actually so there's a, a book that someone recommended to me uh, called meditations by the former Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius. He lived in the first century AD. It's a collection of his thoughts and things he captured during his life, or mainly in the latter part of his life. But I just find it fascinating that some of the challenges and, and issues and wishes that he has are as relevant today as they were, what, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago. He talks a lot about is how he deals with his own sort of sense of right and wanting to do what's right with um, others that he meets that maybe are, are motivated by vanity or greed or ego. And I keep coming back to that. Do we live in a, a go-getter society where, you know, those that are kind of greedy and hungry will will be the, the winners? Uh, or is it actually more about being true to yourself and doing what you think is right and that will prevail? And I'm not the first to, to grapple with that. And actually, he shows that people have done it over the century. Fascinating. Great choice. Thank you both uh, for those. Final question. Uh, I'd like you to go back to a much younger version of yourself and give yourself a piece of advice. And I'll, I'll stay with you, James, for this one. Tell us uh, which younger self you're going back to and uh, what the advice is. 
Yeah. So I'm going back to myself probably when I was about 14, 15. So in those sort of delicate teenage years. And, mm. and I suppose it's at the point where I was having ideas and thoughts and but be feeling very self-conscious to, to articulate them. And it wasn't until my 30s, actually, that I was running an internet auction business in London. And one of our um, salvage dealers, a chap called Sandy Watson, I gave him an idea about what we could do on, on this auction for, for salvaged vehicles. And he just said, James, you're just such a naive idealist. And I smiled because it wasn't an insult and, and I wasn't taken aback by it. And, uh, and, I, and that would be my advice to, to my younger self is keep dreaming, be that naive idealist, because who knows, those naive ideas that you have when you're in your sort of early years are probably the things that people will invent 20 years later. And everyone's saying, well, why didn't I do that? I thought of that. Excellent advice. Thank you, James. Carlotta, a piece of advice to your former self. Yes, James, I'm actually really glad that you you mentioned that. For me, I would go back to my younger self in my early 20s. So now I'm in my late 20s, so not so long ago. And I would kind of recommend to enjoy the process a bit more and trust myself and to never forget who I am and really stay true to myself. Because what I've learned is really, you know, I am very driven, I'm ambitious, but there's nothing nicer than actually also savoring the process instead of just having achieved that goal. And to just, you know, you know who you are, you know what your passion is, you know what you want, and that's fine. I think these are two fantastic pieces of advice. Thank you. Uh, Kelotta, I am conscious that your campaign is in its early stages. Is it more a case of watch this space or is there any way we can uh, at least connect with you, follow you, see a bit more about it? With pleasure. Obviously, addressing young people, millennials and Gen Z, um, mainly to be found on Instagram. Um, so I'm happy to share my handle with you. LinkedIn is always a good platform as well. But of course, there is more to come. Excellent. Well, we will keep tuned in. And you are now officially part of the Lens family. So thank you. And of course, James, uh, we will follow uh, the endeavours of Brisk with great interest. Just remind us where we can find you. Yeah, so you can find us at getbrisk.com uh, or hashtag getbrisk on all the main social media channels. Very good. Well, I am absolutely delighted to say that so much of what we've discussed here is core to uh, so much of what concerns us and our colleagues through business in the community. So much more about all of the work that we're doing at bitc.org.uk. But for now, uh, James Russell and Carlotta Jacquet, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskata, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.